hopefully my lovely assistant Sally is going to put some slides on screen. We are in Exodus chapter 34 today. Um, so if you have a Bible, do turn there. While you're doing that, a couple of disclaimers from me. Um, the first, can I have the next slide, Sally? Thank you. Is that the bulk of what I'm about to say to you is just a massive steal from this book. God has a name by John Mark Comer. Um, this is my favorite John Mark Comer book. If you have ever read any other John Mark Comer book, you will know that that is a startling recommendation because everything he does is very, very good. Um, Yes, if you are a crazy person who doesn't like reading, this is also available as a sermon series from Bridgetown Church. The link is there. So we're going to hit some highlights today, but I only have like half an hour. So um, if you would like to learn more and keep digging into this stuff, that is the place to go. Second disclaimer, it is a very crazy thing that people do up here every week, speaking about and speaking for the living and holy God. I'm so inadequate. I think we're all so inadequate, both to speak rightly and to listen and understand rightly. But God calls us to it anyway. So I know Neil's just prayed, but I'm going to pray again. God, thank you for your goodness that we've heard so much about already today. Thank you for how you've spoken through your word. Please help me to speak. Please help us to hear, to understand. Holy Spirit, spirit of wisdom and revelation, would you fill each of our hearts right now? Would you help us to hear from you? Would you reveal any lies, any misconceptions that we have about you this morning? Would you replace them with truth? Amen. Amen. Cool. So some context before we read this passage. Um, The people of God, they are at Mount Sinai. Um, They've been brought out of Egypt, all the ten plagues, if you know that story. They've come to this Mount Sinai, which is where Moses originally met God in the burning bush, back in chapter 3 of Exodus. So they spend a whole year at Sinai. A whole bunch of stuff happens while they're there. But the thing that we're talking about today, at one point, Moses says to God, show me your glory. In other words, show me who you really are. Moses is after more than head knowledge. He wants to experience God. He wants to know God in a personal sense. And God says, well, if you see my face, you'll die. Like, it, it is, I am too much for you. Just like if you got too close to the sun, you'd be obliterated. You, you can't see my face. But, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, in your presence. So early the next morning, Moses gets up, and he hikes up the mountain to the place that God has told him to go. And then we read this in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. Then Yahweh, I'm going to say Yahweh, wherever you have the Lord in capital in your Bibles, and we'll get to why in a little bit. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. This is one of the few places in scripture where God directly describes his own character, so I think it's worth paying attention to. The biblical authors know that. They refer back to this passage over and over and over. They quote it, they pray it, they use it in their worship songs, they yell it in frustration in Jonah's case. Um, It is possibly the most quoted bit of the Bible by the Bible. There are references to this passage the whole way through the scriptures. Once you start seeing this language, it just pops up everywhere. You can't stop seeing it. 
So it's important. Um, and so we're just going to walk through this passage this morning phrase by phrase, including that weird and jarring bit at the end. We will get there, don't worry. So starting with Yahweh. This is God's name. In the Bible, someone's name is a description of who they are. Uh, when God steps into someone's life and he changes their identity and their trajectory, he'll usually also change their name because their name is a description of who they are. So Abraham, for example, becomes Abraham, which means father of many, to back up God's promise that he's going to give him more descendants than there are stars in the sky. Jacob, which uh, means twister or supplanter, he becomes Israel, meaning he wrestles with God. Or in the New Testament, Simon becomes Peter, which means rock. Uh, it's a sign of what Jesus sees in him and is calling out of him. Names reveal something of a person's character. So Yahweh means he is who he is, or whatever he, will be, whatever he is, he will be. Meaning, whatever this God is like, he is that way consistently, all the time, all the way down, forever. And I think given the rest of his name, this is very good news. Your Bible will say Lord in capitals wherever God's name is used. That's because over time, the Hebrew people stopped saying God's name out loud, out of a very appropriate reverence and awe. Uh, so when they were reading scripture aloud and, and they came to the name in writing, they would out loud instead say Adonai or Lord. And our translations have followed suit. But I think this means we miss out on something crucial. What we call someone is an indication of the relationship that we have with them. So my dentist calls me Miss Hull, usually in an ominous tone. Um, my friends call me Ashley or Ash. Some of the youth call me Shley, like Ashley. Uh, Megan, who's one of my best friends, calls me things like you absolute muppet. We use different names or titles for different kinds of relationship, different levels of intimacy. At this point in the biblical story, we've heard a few titles for God. We've heard that he is creator. We've heard that he is the almighty God, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. But that's not what he calls himself here. That's not how he wants to be addressed by his people. God wants his people to call him by his personal name. Back in Exodus 3, when God first reveals this name Yahweh to Moses, he says, this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. By sharing this name with us, God is calling us to deeper intimacy with him, to personal relationship. We're not just meant to know about him. We're not meant to engage with him at a distance. We get to use his name. We get to know God like Moses did. Uh, it says back in the chapter before, Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. We get to know God like Jesus did, who called this holy Lord Abba and shared his deepest, most honest thoughts with him. We have to hold this curious balance in our walk with God. On the one hand, we must hold the kind of reverent awe that caused God's people to stop even saying his name out loud. But on the other hand, we must remember that we can come to him in intimacy, in easy companionship and deep relationship. I find for myself, actually using his name rather than saying Lord when I read scripture helps me in holding that tension. So when I read things like, holy, 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 is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Or give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. I'm reminded that this holy, good God, the God of hosts whose glory fills the earth, is also the one who I can call by name, who I can relate to on an individual level. He's someone who knows me and who I can know deeply and intimately.
Yahweh, Yahweh. So God says his name twice here. That is not a mistake. He didn't stammer. Um, To really drive a point home in texts like these Hebrew scriptures, you repeat the words. Uh, We might do things like put it in bold or in italics or underline it or put like 10 exclamation marks after it. Um, But they would repeat the word. So holy, 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 in that Isaiah 6 bit I just read, the word holy is repeated to really make the point that the holiness of God is like nothing else. It is beyond any comprehension of holiness that we could ever have. So God repeats the name Yahweh here. Uh, He's perhaps hammering home that he is this relational, personal being, that he's interested and present and invested and engaged. He's perhaps emphasizing that he is unchanging. Remember, the name means he is who he is, or whatever he is, he will be. And I think also he's emphasizing that he is not like any other god that Israel or the people around them might worship, which we will see as we continue through these verses. He is unique. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Order matters in texts like this. The most important thing comes first. So the fact that this is the first character trait that God tells us about means it is the dominant one. It's the most important thing that there is to know about his character. I wonder what you would have put here if you were God. Something about power, perhaps, or creative ability or sovereignty. Maybe you would have kept one of those titles I mentioned earlier, God Almighty or Possessor of Heaven and Earth. But God starts with compassion. The word compassionate in the Hebrew is rakum, which also translates as merciful. So you might have that if you're reading, say, from the ESV, it might say merciful there. Rahum is a feeling word. It describes an emotion. The root word that it comes from is actually the word for womb. Womb. That's always fun to say. Uh, it's meant to make you think of the love of a parent for their kid. In this room, I know that we will have had a mixed experience with parents, so that might be a hard thing for some of us to grasp. An important thing to know is that however good or bad our parents or our relationship with them, God is so much better than the best, and he is nothing like the worst. So if that parent thing is tricky for you, maybe think of instead the best parent you know and how they love their kid. The deep, overwhelming, all-encompassing, almost painful love that would have a move heaven and earth for their child. That is how God feels about us. So that's compassionate. Gracious in the Hebrew is hanun, and that's a doing word, an action word. To hanun somebody is to help them out in a time of need. God is someone who responds. He acts on our behalf. He doesn't just sit there having lovely, warm feelings about us. Like a good parent, he does us good. He comes to the rescue when his kids need help. The gods in the ancient world were not like this. You were never quite sure where you stood with them. You had to do and give all these things so they wouldn't get mad with you. And even then, there was no guarantee. They might just turn around one day and decide to mess up your life for the fun of it. Your gods were remote and dangerous and uncaring. But then Yahweh comes along and he says, I am compassionate and gracious. Jesus comes along and says, you can even call him Father. This is not a God like any other God. He feels deeply for you. It's a gut-deep, bone-deep, fierce, relentless kind of love. And he responds to you. He comes to your aid. He changes his plans because you ask him to. 
For God, it's not like uh, when, for me, I see something awful and feel powerless. Like, say my friend is in emotional distress and I want to do something, I want to fix it, but I actually can't do anything in this situation except just be there and mop up some tears. Uh, that's not how life is for God. And it's also not like when I walk past someone in pain or in need and my heart isn't moved, I just don't really care. God is not like that. He cares and he acts. He loves you and he responds to you. He's compassionate and gracious. And that is his baseline towards you. He shares his name so that you know you can relate to him. And then this is the first thing he wants you to know about how this relationship works. You don't come to an angry God. You don't come to a God who is indifferent or capricious or hard. You come to a God who is compassionate, who is merciful and gracious. So as the author of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's some echoes of Exodus 34 in there in receiving mercy and finding grace. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Some translations use long-suffering here as a translation, which I like. Uh, The Hebrew actually means long of nostrils. And I don't know why that's not in the English. Um, but I think it's great imagery. Like, think about what happens when you're in a situation where you might lose your temper, but instead you keep a hold on it and you... <sighs> long of nostrils, slow to anger. God does get angry, but it is unusual. And when he finally lets it out, it's on purpose, it's deliberate, and it's under control. God's anger is not on a hair trigger. It's not about wounded ego, as so often ours is. It's not unjust or disproportionate. God's anger is fitting. It is the right emotional response. We tend not to like the idea of God's anger or wrath or judgment. We like the love bit. But it is good that God gets angry. It is good that he is angry over the evil and the injustice in the world. We do actually want this. We want an end to, an answer for things like abuse and war and rape and murder. We know this is not how things are supposed to be. There is evil in this world. And the healthy, emotionally mature response to that is anger. Yahweh's anger flows from his compassion and his grace. He loves his children. My mum used to get angry at me for hitting my brother or lying to her, neither of which I do now, of course. She would also get angry about any... I'm carefully not looking over there. She also got angry about any kids that picked on me or friends who treated me badly. Or she'd be angry about someone who caused me harm or at systems that negatively impact my life. Of course she's angry about those things. She loves me. She wants me to thrive and flourish in a good world, and it is right for her to be angry at the things that prevent that, whether they come from outside of me or within me. God is angry about human sin and disobedience. Of course he is. He loves us. He wants us to thrive and flourish in a good world, and it is right for him to be angry at the things that prevent that, whether they come from outside of us or within us. God gets angry, and that is good. But he is slow to anger. To illustrate this, we're going to think about Nineveh, obviously. Where else would you go? Um, In the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah, his prophet, to warn the Ninevites that God's judgment is coming. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was barbaric, it was oppressive and cruel. It was one of Israel's enemies. So Jonah, understandably, was a bit reluctant to go. He took some convincing. That's a fun read. Um, But he does eventually go to Nineveh and proclaim this message. And in a shocking turn, the Ninevites repent. 
They stop doing the evil things that God hates and they humble themselves before him. And God, who is compassionate and gracious, responds to their repentance. He forgives them. That's what Jonah gets mad about. In chapter 4, it says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to Yahweh, Isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Yahweh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Possibly the only time that Exodus 34 is quoted as a grumble. Um, so, 100, 150 years later, we have the book of Nahum, who is one of those small Old Testament prophets that you usually flick right past. Uh, we're in the same city, Nineveh, we're a few generations on, and the people have turned back to their evil practices. They've actually just invaded Israel, they've destroyed most of the northern half of the territory, uh, they've killed or enslaved most of the people, and Yahweh's patience with them, it seems, finally reaches a limit. The book of Nahum opens with this poem. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Yahweh takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. Yahweh will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. You possibly won't find that one on a mug in the Christian bookshop. The Ninevites learned that Yahweh is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. He loves to show mercy and relent from sending calamity, as Jonah put it. But he will not leave our sin unchecked forever. There comes a time when he says, enough, and he puts a stop to our evil once and for all. He is slow to anger. He is patient towards us. That is good news. But he is slow to anger. He judges, he displays his wrath, and he ends evil. And that is good news too. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In English, it might start to feel repetitive around this point, but the Hebrew is much more exciting. I really like Hebrew. I don't know if you're getting that vibe. So love here is hesed. That could be translated as steadfast love or covenant loyalty. A covenant is kind of like a blend between a contract and a promise. Uh, I think our closest modern equivalent is marriage. It's both a legal binding contract, but it's also a promise. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That is who he is. That is what his love looks like. Faithfulness here is emet, which also means truth or trustworthy. God is reliable. He is someone you can count on. He is someone who will not let you down. When he makes a promise, makes a covenant, he keeps it. He is loyal. He never, ever abandons his people. He is faithful to the bitter end, no matter the cost to himself. 2 Timothy puts it like this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithful love is based on his own character, not on me or my actions, which is excellent news. The most obvious example of God's steadfast covenant love and faithfulness is Jesus. Uh, John 1, speaking of Jesus, says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's lost in translation from Hebrew to Greek to English, but that full of grace and truth is a quote of this, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
Jesus is the embodiment of God's hesed and emet, his steadfast covenant love and faithfulness. Back in Genesis 3, God promised redemption to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that the world would be blessed through his family. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that he would always have a son on the throne of Israel, that the Messiah would come from his line, would reign forever. And there are so many more promises all through the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of them. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul puts it like this, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Jesus is God being faithful. He is God's character on display. And this unchanging God will continue to be who he is, fulfilling every promise that he has made, showing compassion and grace to you, calling you into intimate relationship with himself. That's who he is. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The love of God is not reserved for a handful of favorites. His love is abundant. It is broad. It reaches out to everyone it can. Because of the way these sentences are structured, you could stick the word generations on the end of maintaining love to thousands. So it could be maintaining love to a thousand generations. That doesn't mean at generation 1001, God's love is just shut off. It's hyperbolic. It's a way of saying there is no end date on God's love. It just keeps on going. We can't get rid of his grace. We can't outrun his mercy. There is no end in sight. His heart is set on us, and his love is far bigger than we could imagine. And this is flatteringly contrasted with our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Again, more Hebrew. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, These three words in the Hebrew, they cover the full scope of human evil. So wickedness, or you might have iniquity in your translation. That in Hebrew is avon, which means being bent out of shape, being warped. Um, like all the things that we do that are crooked, that are twisted. Rebellion, you might have transgression there. That is pasha, that is a legal word. Uh, It's to do with law-breaking or oath-breaking. It's a criminal offense. It's knowing what God says and deliberately doing something counter to it. And then that word sin is hatar, which is not actually a moral word. It just means missing the mark. Like if you're shooting an arrow or you're throwing a dart and you miss the bullseye. It's a general mess-up kind of word. in modern, our modern English, we tend to use that word sin as a coverall for the other two as well, and I've doubtless done so already this morning. Um, yeah, the Bible Project have some excellent short videos that cover this stuff in more detail. Go to YouTube, search for their Bad Words series if you'd like to know more about that, because it's really, really good. But we will move on. So, our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The full scope of human evil and depravity. What does God do with it? How does God respond? He forgives all of it. And not even just that, he is forgiving. It's in his name, it's in his nature. I think sometimes we think that Jesus is the nice one who convinced the Old Testament God to stop being so mean all the time. But that is a gross misreading of the entire Old Testament. Here, in only the second book, God is making that clear. Forgiveness grows out of God's nature, out of the deepest parts of his being. He loves to forgive. It's not that he forgives reluctantly because Jesus has his arm twisted behind his back. He forgives eagerly. He is itching to forgive. It's like he looks around every morning going, who do I get to forgive today? Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands or to a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
Another, perhaps better translation for that, is he will by no means clear the guilty. This isn't about revenge or senseless punishment. God's end goal is a world without evil. That's a really good end goal. That's a place I want to live. But it means that he must deal with sin. There are two ways that we can be as humans. There are two states of being, I think, on offer to us. One is guilty, and the other, forgiven. Naturally, we're all guilty. That's where we all start. But God offers to change that state to make us forgiven. It's a gift on offer to us. Like any gift, you have to reach out and take it. You have to say yes to it. And if you don't, if you choose to stay guilty rather than be forgiven, if you continue to ignore God's goodness and his offer as forgiveness, offer of forgiveness, then as we've talked about already, he'll only allow your wickedness to continue for so long before he puts a stop to it. If you insist on clinging to your sin, then you will go down with it. He will by no means clear the guilty. It's sobering. It should sober us. And this next bit might not make you feel any better. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands or to a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What an odd and disturbing conclusion. This cannot mean what it sounds like to us at face value. Moses uh, later says the exact opposite thing in Deuteronomy 24. He says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So this can't actually mean that if my father embezzles some money from the bridge club, God is going to make me suffer for it. No further comment there. Uh, So what what does this mean? I cannot claim to have, and nor do I have time to give, a full answer that covers the profound depths that I think are contained in this phrase. But I think at least in part it means this, that the parent's sin has consequences for the children. We inherit things from our parents, physical features, personality traits, worldviews, and tendencies towards certain sins. Just like green eyes or heart disease can run in families, so can pride and lust and greed. That punishing the children might be better translated visiting the iniquity. That was the word that was about crookedness, being bent out of shape. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. It's like all our crookedness gets passed down. So in that sense, children do take on and even receive the punishment for the sin of their parents. But there is good news here too. As I've mentioned, the the poetic rhythm of these verses means that whatever comes after thousands, maintaining love to thousands, could also come after third and the fourth. And the word generation isn't actually there in the Hebrew. It's added to make that sentence a bit less awkward in English. So this could read, maintaining love to a thousand generations, and he punishes the children to the third and the fourth generation. We're meant to grasp that that is a scale that is wildly out of balance. The love and the mercy of God is greater and more enduring than even the sin that gets passed down through generations and God's resulting judgment of it. The Bible shows us that sin is pervasive. We are blinded by it. We are surrounded by it. We're dead in it. It's the air that we breathe, and it's even passed down to our children and their children. Left to ourselves, we are trapped and hopeless. But here, in God's very name, is a promise that he will deal with it. We will be free of it. This sin can't outrun him. He won't forget or ignore or miss any of it. He is committed to rooting every speck of sin out of you, no matter where the source of it is. He will not stop until the eradication of sin in you 
and in your family line is complete until you are completely free. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which is another great one, you should all read, he puts it like this. Yes, our sins will be passed down to our children and grandchildren, but God's goodness will be passed down in a way that inexorably swallows up all of our sins. His mercies travel down a thousand generations, far eclipsing the third or fourth. I'm going to wrap up because I'm probably already over time. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, to a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. We are God's people who are called by his name. We carry God's name. Just like I carry my earthly father's name, or my sister-in-law now carries my brother's, her husband's name. We are hulls. Each one of us represents to the world what it means to be a hull, which is mostly that you always order dessert. It's not even a question. It happens. We carry God's name. We represent him to the world. We're meant to put his name on display through how we live. God is after a people who are compassionate, who are gracious, who are patient, long of nostrils, slow to anger. People who are faithful and steadfast, who are quick to show mercy, who are forgiving, who are more interested in justice than in vengeance, who are holy and free of sin. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are given his name. And you become a living, breathing example of what Yahweh is like. So be mindful of the honor that that is. Be jealous for his name. Guard it. Be uncompromising with sin in your life, with anything that would distort your representation of Yahweh or would bring dishonor to his name. And seek him first. We can't bear his name well if we don't know it. That's more than head knowledge, more than listening to me this morning or reading the John Mark Comer book, although do Go and do that. We need to know his faithfulness and compassion and wrath and mercy, not just know about them. The closer we are to him, the more we will look like him. So I would urge you to set your eyes, your mind, your heart on him. Run hard after him all the days of your life. He is beautiful and he is good and his heart burns with love for you. There is nothing better that you could give your life to.